please follow along in your Bibles as we read from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is certainly a joy to be back after being away for a few weeks. And um, certainly look forward to digging into this text with you all. Let's pray again before we listen to God's Word. Uh, Father, we pray now for this time. Lord, it is such a sweet thing that you have commanded us to gather together like this every single week so that we can sing together that we can pray together, and we can hear your word read as we just did, and Lord, as we can sit under your word preached. And so now as we turn our attention to this holy moment, Father, we pray and ask that you would indeed speak to us. Speak through me, your broken vessel. And Lord, use this message in my own life certainly in the lives of my brothers and sisters. We just pray, Father, that you would have your way with us for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in, in Christian circles, you'll often hear people use the word holy or holiness, right? We, we just sang, along with Scripture, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We, 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 we know these things. They, they, they roll off the tongue. But I do wonder how often we stop and consider what we're saying, consider what, what, what these things mean, and, and, and what's more, why is it important? And so this summer, as we're doing this little 10-week summer series called 10 Reasons Jesus Came to Die, we're going to lean in on this biblical teaching of God's holiness as we want to focus on one of the reasons that Jesus died was to demonstrate the holiness of God. One of the reasons Jesus became a man and lived among us and went to the cross was to put God's holiness on display for all to see. And clarity here, 
will help us in our thinking about God, which in turn will help us as Christians to how we should think about ourselves, and certainly help us in our thinking of how we should live. So turn with me, if you're not already there, to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to start with this idea of holiness, the holiness of God, and how Jesus was born to put it on display. And I want to begin by rereading the first three verses here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each having six wings, and with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. In order to get a better feel for God's holiness, I want to look at five things we learn about God from this passage. And then I'm going to tie it together at the end by tying this to the cross. Now, let me just say right at the beginning that this sermon is in no way an exhaustive study on God's holiness. How could it be? I won't even be able to exhaust what's in this amazing passage, but hopefully what we do will help us to consider this vital reason that Jesus came to die. So, there's five points that are on your outline. Point number one, God is eternal. Follow me here. Isaiah's ministry started, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, this King Uzziah, if you read the Old Testament, you, you see that he's one of the longest standing kings in Judah. He actually reigned for 52 years. 52 years. That's, that's a long time. There would have been many people who would have known no other king in their lifetime other than Uzziah. I mean, just put it in perspective for a minute. If you're in this room and you're 30, say you were born in 1991, you would have lived through Presidents George Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, George Bush Jr., Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden. But, but, but imagine if you're 30, imagine if you're 40, even 50, and you had only one president. And that's what's going on here. Someone like Isaiah, even though we don't know his exact age, we, we do know, given the length of his ministry, there's no way he's 50 yet, so King Uzziah is the only king he has ever known in Judah, and now this king is dead which brings a level of unrest, right? The long-standing king of Judah is dead. The people of Judah are in mourning and no doubt thinking about his replacement. And yet, notice in this text, in direct contradistinction to that, the eternal king of kings is alive and well. In fact, he's still sitting on his throne. More to the point, he's always been on his throne and he always will be on his throne. And this certainly sets God apart from any other world leader. Indeed, it sets God apart from every other being in the world. He is completely different here. All other leaders, all other kings, all other beings have a starting point. But before God even created the idea of time, He has been sitting on His throne Psalm 90, verse 2, we read, Before the mountains were brought forth, 
or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures, angels of some kind, cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Friends, when we think of God's holiness, His distinctness, His complete otherness, His eternality certainly stands out. I mean, who can say they're like God on this point? Who in this room would even dare say that you're not going to die? Right? Oh, we, we do all sorts of stuff with the medical field, and rightly so, to try to extend life. People try to eat better and exercise and all of that. But do we really extend our lives? I mean, God is sovereign over the day that we would be born and over the day that we would die. Who would say that they're not going to die or somehow in control of that. What's more, how absurd would you sound if you were to try to say to somebody in an honest conversation, I've always been, (laughs) right? I know you all had a birthday, not me. I don't know how, but I've just always been. They're like, come on, get this guy's mom in here. Let's dispel that ridiculous thing right now. No, only God, only in reference to to God, do we dare say from everlasting to everlasting, or the one who was, who is, and is to come? God alone stands distinct on this point. He is completely different from you and me, which is getting at this idea of His holiness. Moreover, we've already alluded to this one. Number two on the outline, God is King And he's not just any king. He is the king above all kings, and thus he has all authority. Look back at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He just talked about Uzziah, right? the earthly king. Now he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Kings sit on thrones. And note that this text is driving home that this isn't just any throne, right? Because this isn't just any king. This king, he says, is highly exalted. This throne is lifted up. This king is majestic. Later in Isaiah, in Isaiah 66, 1, God himself says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And all of this is getting at God's authority. If there's no king higher, then you're now getting a glimpse at what we might call ultimate authority. Here, Isaiah is saying, no greater throne, no greater king, no higher authority. See, the point of this description is to bring us to the ground. Right? The point of this description is to humble us. This is no ordinary king. This is the eternal king of kings who is high and lifted up. And as a result, this king has all authority over all things and most certainly over every part of every human being's life. He has all authority in heaven and he has all authority on earth. And we say that, but again, do we really think about what that means? Think about it. Sometimes you hear people describing their own story, 
and they'll say something like, I was the master of my own domain. I was the captain of my own ship, but then I turned over the reins to God. I gave control of my life to God. And I, and I understand what they mean. I used to talk like that. I understand that from our perception, it, it, it might feel like that. But the reality is it's just wrong. Theologically, it's almost blasphemous. You, you hear that and you almost want to say, really? You, you did that? God was waiting on you to give him that little pocket of authority that somehow he didn't have. You were, you were somehow holding God hostage on the authority front. If you had such authority, tell me, did you decide which city you'd be born in? If you had such authority, how about your mom and dad? Did you, did you choose them? Did you sort of scroll through the preconception webpage and say, I have complete autonomy over every part of my life, and I choose those two unsuspecting suckers to give them a run for their money for the next 18 years or so. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. We don't give God any authority. He already has it. Oh, we can pretend He doesn't and see how that goes for us in the end. But it's far better to acknowledge His authority now, praise Him for His authority, honor Him for being the only one that is completely autonomous and willfully and joyfully submit to his authority. Virginia Owens in the Reformed Journal back in 1983 absolutely nailed this. She said, let us get this one thing straight. God can do anything he damn well pleases, including damn well. And if it pleases him to damn, then it is done ipso facto well. God's activity is what it is. There isn't anything else. Without it, there would be no being, including human beings, presuming to judge the creator of everything that is, end quote. Friends, God is our great, eternal high king. He has all authority over every part of our lives. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And what's left for us? is to rebel against that in our hearts for the few years we have and be humbled in the end, or to fall down at His feet and honor Him and know that He is God and that He is good and submit willingly and joyfully to His sovereign rule over our lives. Which leads to the third point, number three. This God who has all authority, our eternal King, is revered even among sinless perfect angels. Look back at verses 2 through 4. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah speaks of seraphim here. Now, we don't know a whole lot about these beings, as this is the only time they show up in Holy Scripture, but we can be confident that they are awesome in size and power. How do I know that? Well, two reasons. One would come from sort of a whole Bible theology on angels, and the other would come from 
this text itself. So let's start with the big picture. Think about the whole Bible. When you study the Bible and you were to go and pull all of the passages that have angels, one of the things that you notice is that every time angels show up before men, men start falling out on their face and start confessing sin. Please, don't ever let the ridiculous pictures out there of fat little babies with wings or beautiful women with wings sort of create your picture of angels. I think it's one of the most unhelpful uses of biblical artwork out there because you might look at those paintings and say, wow, she's a beautiful woman, or say, whoa, what a cute little baby. But let's be clear, you don't read the biblical text and ever think someone sees an angel and says, wow, he's cute, right? You don't fall on your face and start crying out for mercy because you think he's just so darn cute. No. No, that's not what happens, but falling on your face is what we see throughout the Bible when angels show up before humans. Moreover, even here in this text, so it's now specific to the text, we get a glimpse of their power, don't we? Because when they speak, look at verse 4, when they speak, notice the foundations of the heavens shake. And my point here is these seraphim, these angels who spoke and the foundation shook, they would command our awe and our amazement and our fear, and yet they, even they, revere God. Even they humble themselves completely before God. With two wings, they cover their face so as to not look upon His unencumbered glory. With two wings, they cover their feet, their creatureness. With two, they fly. Brothers and sisters, these were not fallen angels. These are sinless angels. And they still won't look on God's glory. They still hide their feet and their face in humility before God. How much more should we fallen, sinful human beings revere our God who is holy, who is distinct, who is perfect in purity? Which leads to our next point, and we've been all over this one. The next point is that God is holy, holy, holy. Verse 3, one, and it's one of the seraphim, called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, we could spend all day on this one passage, this one verse, but a couple points will have to suffice first. Note that this statement is not giving us a separate description of God. This is not another point about God. In fact, we could say that all of the points we've made so far fall under this one. The fact that God is eternal, the fact that He's king on His throne, so perfect that even the angels cover their face and their, and their feet, all are getting at this idea of God's holiness. Thus the seraphim here are simply declaring what is true of God. He is holy. R.C. Sproul in his excellent book, The Holiness of God. If you, if you want to get one volume to just read and dig in on the holiness of God. I recommend this little book, The Holiness of God by Sproul. And he rightly makes a big deal out of the fact that the biblical writers use, use repetition for emphasis. But rarely do you see a threefold repetition like you do here. See, there comes a point where vocabulary falls short, where you just don't have the words. I, I, we see it in children. I have five kids, and when my kids were 
really young. They all sort of did this in their own way, and it was just so awesome as a dad and so special, and I just loved it. But I would get, I would get a letter, and you know, sometimes they'd come and you know, tap you on the leg and hand it to you. Other times they'd hide it somewhere. But it would, it would be essentially the same thing with all of the kids and done in their own way. But it would basically say, Dear Dad, Dear, almost always misspelled, Dear Dad, I love you so, 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 next line, so, 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 all the way down to the bottom of the page, so, so, so much, right? Their vocabulary is limited. They're trying to describe something that goes beyond the words they have. Here, with the entire Hebrew language at the disposal of this angel. I say Hebrew language because he's revealing this. This is being revealed to Isaiah, who's a Hebrew. So with the entire Hebrew language at his disposal, the angel says, holy, holy, holy. And it's worth pointing out that Revelation 4 teaches us that we will hear and do this kind of singing around the throne for all eternity. Understand this. No other attribute of God is spoken of like this. Just search the Scriptures. Do your own word study. See for yourself. The Bible does not speak ever, not once, of God's grace, 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 or His wrath, 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 or even we always talk about God's love. Never see the Bible talk about His love, love, love. You know, at one level you could say all of these other attributes fall under this idea, this idea and understanding of God's holiness. God's grace is holy. His grace is totally different. All of us from time to time have areas where we show some sort of grace, but God's grace is different than any other offering of grace. God's wrath is holy. His is a holy wrath. We have wrath, right? But often we just fly off the handle and quickly into sin, but not God. His wrath is holy. He has wrath, but it's never sinful. That's unique. His love is holy. None love like God. Who would sacrifice their only son for those living in active rebellion? I think the Scriptures themselves help us to see that God's holiness is getting at His very essence and that other characteristics fall under His holiness. Consider how Isaiah speaks of God's holy righteousness. He says in Isaiah 5.16, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows Himself holy in righteousness. Holy in righteousness. See, God's holiness gets at the fact that He is completely different. He is perfect. He is distinct. He is other. And now I'm the one running out of words. In Isaiah 40, verse 25, we read, To whom will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One? And the implied answer is, no one, right? Who, we sing, has held the oceans in His hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of His deeds? There's no one we can compare to God. Hannah rightly says in 1 Samuel 2.2, there is none holy like the Lord. And this translates into every other characteristic of God. This gets toward the very essence of who God is. 
When we think about holiness and say our call to be holy as he is holy, you've probably heard some of the definitions, right? The root meaning of holy is to cut or to separate. So a holy thing is, is cut off or separated from something. And then, and then we usually say that something holy would be separated from one thing and then devoted to something else, right? And so we read in the Bible of holy men, holy women, holy Sabbath, holy assemblies, and so on and so forth. And these are separated from the common, from the profane, and they're devoted to God. But listen, that, that definition fails, doesn't it, when you speak of God? What's he separated from? What's he devoted to? Is he possibly devoted to anything higher than himself, given that he is the highest and greatest of all beings? Absolutely not. He is holy in and of himself. He is dependent upon no one or no thing. He has life in and of himself. He has goodness in and of himself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was, who is, and is to come. Brothers and sisters, when we come to grips with his holiness, we cannot help but see how remarkably different he is than us, and thus we can't help but see we have a problem. Number five, as we think about God's holiness, as we think about God's complete otherness, His perfection, it becomes all the more clear that God's holy grace is our only hope before a holy God. Look back at verses four through seven. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. As, as we read Isaiah 6, please don't miss that there is no sense whatsoever that Isaiah had some sort of swagger before the Lord that we so often see today. How, how often do we see an athlete interviewed after a big game, and he'll say something like, I just want to thank the big man upstairs, you know? I just want to thank the big dude, right? He's so big, and he made me so great. He, he's, he's my man, and I want to give him some props, because after all, I mean, he made me maybe a half step below him. Not Isaiah. Isaiah gets a glimpse, a small glimpse of the holiness of God. He doesn't even see his face, just a part of his glory, and he's undone. Elsewhere in the Bible, you see, you see biblical writers pronounce woes on others, right? The prophets will often pronounce woes upon ungodly nations. Jesus pronounces woes upon the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Isaiah gets a glimpse, just a glimpse of God's holiness, and he starts pronouncing woes upon himself. He falls on his face and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. Or better yet, I am undone. 
I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, I am a sinner and I live among a bunch of sinners and I've seen your glory and I'm finished. See, Isaiah gets it. He's ruined and he knows it. God is so utterly different. God is so utterly God, so utterly perfect. And Isaiah is a sinner, and he's done. He's toast. He's, he's up the creek. Whatever terminology you want to use, he's finished. Except, praise God, except for the fact that God's holy, holy, holy grace is on display here, pointing us ahead to Jesus' work on the cross. And to be sure, and don't ever forget this, God could have wiped Isaiah out right there. We act as though we deserve God's grace. We act as though He owes us grace. But if we have just a glimpse of what Isaiah saw, we would be crystal clear that the most shocking thing in the annals of human history is not that God would send somebody to hell, but it is the reality that God would show grace to anyone, for none of us deserve it. But God's love and His grace are holy. They are indefinable. They are amazing. Which leads to the point that we started with and the point we're going to close with, and that is one of the reasons Jesus came to die was to demonstrate the holiness of God. In verse 3, the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And I love here what John Piper says, about the link between God's holiness and His glory. He says that God's glory is when God's holiness goes public, right? The glory of God is God's holiness on display for all to see. And I think Piper's right. The glory of God is when God's holiness goes public. And there's, there's, there's a lot we could say here because we see God's glory all over the place, but as we're focusing on the cross and the reason for the cross, I want to point out that when you read John's gospel, he makes it very clear that the glory of God, God's holiness gone public, is most clearly on display in Jesus' work on the cross. John tells us that we see the glory of God in the incarnation of Christ. In John 1.14, we read, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this glory, while seen in the incarnation, especially when you think about the why of the incarnation, is most clearly seen in the cross, according to John. In John 7, verse 39, we're told that at that point, at that point, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified, which is clearly talking about the cross, which is really common language in, in John. In John 12, at the end of Jesus' public ministry, on His way to the cross, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's He talking about? He's talking about the cross. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then He prays. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the Father answers, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. See, this is clearly pointing to the cross. God the Father would glorify Himself. He would put His holiness on display through His Son at the cross. In fact, if you read John closely, over and over again, you see John referring to the glory of Christ. He says things like, his disciples didn't understand it at first, but when he was glorified, they did. 
And again, in John, this is all about the cross. And I point that out because in the cross of Christ, God's holiness goes public in a most profound, indeed a most definitive way. God is perfect. He is so morally pure that the only way sinful people like us could have a chance to have fellowship with God is through the cross. Jesus died then to demonstrate God's holiness. God would put His holiness on display when Jesus, the the, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, who was God from eternity past, would enter into time and space, live the perfect life we couldn't live, and go to the cross and glorify the Father. He would glorify the Father by showing the world God's holiness. God's holiness went public in the very fact that Jesus had to be born and that He had to die because God is a God of holy purity and holy justice. People who have rebelled must be punished. Otherwise, God wouldn't be a God of holy justice. And because He's a God who chose to glorify Himself by redeeming a people for Himself, He would have to show them His holy mercy in order to redeem them. And so at the cross, think about it, His holy love and His holy righteousness come together for all to see. On the cross, God the Son would take all of the sin of all who would trust in Him. Through an amazing transaction, not only would our sin be removed, but Christ's perfect life would amazingly be credited to our accounts whereby we can have fellowship with a God who is perfect. See, God's holiness went public in astonishing fashion at the cross. At the cross, God said, I am so remarkably different than you that you can never make your way to me. But my love is so remarkably different than yours that I have made a way for you. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ as your only hope to have fellowship with a holy God, I would plead with you to trust Him today. He is our only hope. And if you're here and you're a Christian, I hope we have at least a little bit of a better feel for what it means that God is holy and we'll rejoice that Jesus came to put His holiness on display. What's more, I pray that this will have, help us to have a better feel for what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 through 16, when he says, but as He who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Remember earlier we said holy has sort of a root meaning of set apart, right? Set apart from the world, set apart from the profane, devoted to God. And that means we're set apart from what the world tells us is important. We are devoted to what God tells us is important. We're set apart from the idea of self-service, devoted to serving God and His people. We're set apart from being all about our own mission, devoted to being on God's mission. See, when we really understand, or at least have a glimpse of the holiness of God, there's no way in the world we would ever think we could live however we good and well please 
and somehow have fellowship with the most glorious, perfect being in the world. In fact, when we come to grips with God's holiness, when we embrace God's holiness, indeed love God's holiness, we would never want to. We actually grow to hate our sin more and more. As we draw closer to our holy God, any impurities we have become all the more clear and we hate them. And we trust the finished work of Christ on the cross to cleanse them and to empower us to grow in fighting them and putting them to death. This is why I said a bigger view of the holiness of God changes everything. God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And so in response, we're going to stand and we're going to declare this. We're going to sing, who has held the oceans in his hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Who's given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his deeds? Behold our God. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. You are the one who was and is and is to come. And Father, I pray that you would give us a bigger picture of your holiness. Father, I pray that you would help us to stand in awe of who you are and that you would grow us in worshiping you and living our lives bowed down before you, humbling ourselves before you, confessing daily that you are God, you are King, you are God Most High, our highest authority and our greatest good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.